that in this book of Acts is that uh, Pentecost has happened recently. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the whole, on the believing body, on the apostles and then on those who would believe. So the Holy Spirit is moving and is active and we have believers coming to faith in Christ. In a new church, a brand new church that's been born. And as we've kept going now, they're, they're participating in the daily activities. They're going into the temple to pray at the hour of prayer. And what we covered in chapter 3 is that Peter and John, as they were going in to pray at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they passed a lame beggar, a man who's been lame for his whole life. He's a cripple. And every day, he gets laid at the same point and begs for alms. Peter and John, we've talked about for a couple weeks, just say, I don't have money. I don't have goods. What I have, I give to you. And they give him Christ. And the lame man believes in Christ. And the faith in Christ that was a gift to him sets him free from his from his disease, from whatever it was that had crippled him for life. He's set free from that bondage. He gets up and he doesn't just hobble into the temple, but he goes leaping and praising God because of what's been done. This is the story that we're in. And even as we start chapter four, um, this is the story that we're still reflecting on this morning. When they go into the temple, the common people are in awe and they respond. They are enthralled by what has just happened. It's undeniable that here was this man that was lame his whole life. Now he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. So it draws a crowd. And many people are gathered here to figure out what's going on with Peter and John. And so that's where we pick up this morning. And we're going to read this text, Acts 4, verses 1 through 12. And then we're going to talk through it and, uh, and just see what the Word would reveal to us this morning about who God is. So if you turn with me, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. As they were speaking, and this is Peter and John again, so as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning, not to hear from me, not to hear from any man, but Lord, we ask, humbly ask that we would hear from your word today and that you would give us your truth. And not only that we would hear your truth, Lord, but that you would apply it to our lives and help us to see what manner of lives we ought to live for your name's sake. We pray that it would be you that's teaching, you that's guiding, you that edifies. We pray that this morning you would save and we pray, Lord, that those who are saved, you would build up into the likeness of the very image of Christ. And let us not even fall short 
of that calling that's on our lives because you've prepared good works for us to walk in. So Lord, help us to walk in them. Help us to refine this body and help us to be a church that's called out for your purposes. Lord, speak to us this morning by your word. Set me aside for what you would wish to accomplish. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to go back a little bit further. I want to go back because we're going to, as we read through this, we're seeing the response of the religious leaders of the day. We're seeing the response of the Sanhedrin. So I want to go back a little bit further than just healing of the layman. I want to go back and just talk about the context, the culture, what we're living in when we, when we read this. It's important for us to understand who Israel is, who the leaders of Israel are, why they respond the way that they do, and the type of world they were living in. I think you might draw some similarities to the world they were living in as compared to the world that we live in. And the one theme that really stands out as we go back and look at who Israel was and what we'll talk about a lot today is something called syncretism. Do we know what syncretism is? Have you heard that word or is it foreign? Syncretism is the idea that you can bring together opposite belief systems, opposite ideas, and you can merge them together as one, and then everybody can just be happy. If we can take this group over here and this group over here, and we'll allow this group to worship who they want to worship, and we'll allow this group to do what they want to do, and in theory, we can mesh all that together, and somehow we'll have a nation. Somehow we'll have one solid group. And that's what syncretism is. It's that idea that you can mesh those two worldviews, those two things together. Um, Sync is just a common prefix on a lot of words. You have synchronized diving. You've got two different divers that are going to try to get all their stuff together so that the two of them can come up and they can dive at the same time and do the exact same moves and it'll look perfect together. You synchronize your watch. We used to. Now our cell phones do everything for us. But we used to, I mean, for a while, you'd go and find a good clock, a clock that we knew that was right, and we would sync our time to that watch so that we'd all be in sync. And then there's bumper stickers. Have you have, have you seen, I guess, have you seen or do you have one of those coexist stickers? Those coexist stickers, the idea, the, the thing behind it is that we can have Jews and we can have Christians and we can have Islam and we can have all of these different ideas and we'll put them all together in one pot and everything's going to be fine. It's going to work out really well if we would just coexist. That's syncretism. I don't know how you, how you feel about it. There are good things about it, our culture says, and there are good ideas behind it. Can't we just love? Can't we just live and let live? But the, the problem that I see with it, and the problem that Scripture has with it, and this problem goes back all the way, is the whole history of the Bible. It's a problem of syncretism. And really what syncretism is, is a problem with authority. Because the reason that you have to syncretize, the reason you have to put these different things together is because everyone has to declare that theirs isn't an authority, Yours isn't an authority. We're the authority, and we can mesh all these things together. Syncretism is a denial of any one thing being in authority. So you end up with a culture or a social system that has no ultimate authority because we're syncretized. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6, 24. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and... The ESV says money. The New King James says mammon. Mammon maybe is a little bit better because when we talk about mammon, it's not just money, but it's culture. 
It's your belongings, it's your possessions, it's your way of life. It's everything that you hold near and dear as opposed to God. They're in opposition to each other. It's not evil to have money, it's not evil to have possessions, but there's only one place for authority. If you try to syncretize two things and try to give each one authority, you'll fail. Ultimately, you'll end up on one side or the other because you can't have both. So we're in a time in Acts, as this is happening, as this lame man is healed and as these religious leaders are in turmoil, they have no idea what to do with Peter and John. They have no idea what to do in response to this. And the reason is that this is the whole history of Israel. They've been stuck in syncretism for all of their existence, but especially in the last 400 years. This last 400 years that happened before the book of Acts is silence. It's the pages between your Old Testament and your New Testament. It's a 400-year period with nothing written that we consider to be inspired. There are history books written, though, called the Apocrypha. And Apocrypha just, it's uninspired works. It's for the Protestant perspective. The Catholic Church considers them inspired works. At any rate, there's a whole series of books that were written that cover that time frame, and if nothing else, there's history there. And from that history, we know that Israel was allowed, after being put in exile, and they were exiled because of syncretism, because they worshipped other gods instead of the true God, God sent them into exile to Babylon. It was their punishment. They had broken their covenant. But eventually, according to prophecy, they were allowed to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. This was Israel now. And they existed there for some time. Not all of Israel went back, but there was a good contingent that went back, and this was Israel. But after some time, the world powers come through, through syncretism and through blending of cultures, Alexander comes in and conquers them. And now Alexander is ruling over this nation of Israel. So this is their history. This is who they are. Alexander is a politician. Alexander isn't like some of the other rulers of the day that comes in and wipes the people out and dominates over them. But Alexander is a guy that comes in and says, you can have your God. You can have the God of Israel. We just want you to take the culture of the Greeks and integrate it or syncretize. Take all of what the Greek culture is with all of its, they had uh, just education. They're highly educated people. Schooling was important. Stadiums and games and competitions there was all of this great Greek culture that Alexander said, keep your God, but put all this stuff in the middle of it too. And during that time, that's really where we see the roots founded for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sadducees, um, at the time, this Greek culture was called Hellenism. And the Hellenistic people were saying, yeah, let's go. Let's adopt this Greek culture. There's no reason that we can't adopt some of this and also worship God. And it was especially among the younger generations. Younger generations would go and they would do their temple duties according to their Jewish faith, and then they would go afterwards and they'd compete in gymnasiums. They would go and do the things that Greek culture introduced to them, and they would live the Greek life, and the younger generation honestly liked the Greek life better than they liked the temple life. So these were the people that were for the Hellenization. They were for the culture. They were for this Greek influence. And then you had traditionalists that just said, no way, we're losing our God. We're losing. Don't you remember that we were sent into exile for these things? And they're going to hold on tightly to their faith. And they're going to reject the culture. And they're going to become so opposed to the culture, they're going to become legalistic and strict. And they're not going to allow any of that culture in at all. That's their history. That's who these people are. That's where they're coming up from. After Greece, 
There are multiple dynasties that come into effect, but about 60 years before Christ, Rome comes in. And now Rome takes over, and Rome is in control, and Rome does the same thing. You can have your God, but you need to interject this Roman culture along with it. And one important thing to note, Caesar is God. You can worship your God, but Caesar is God. A little bit of conflict, yeah? We can't live like that. The Bible says we can't live like that. Jesus says we can't live like that. That's no way of life. When the Greeks did it, they allowed Israel to worship their God for a time. Eventually, the Greeks wiped out Judaism. They made it illegal for moms to circumcise their babies in accordance with their beliefs. They made it illegal to worship God in the temple. And in the temple, they put Zeus and they put forms of Baal gods inside the Jewish temple. Because they can't both stand at the same time, you can't be syncretized. Eventually, one will fall and the other will take root. It has to go that way every time. Jesus said so. It's the way it works. These guys knew this. So now we're in modern day. We're in the book of Acts. And we have this religious nut named Jesus and his followers. And they're preaching something new. And we have a religion. We have a Jewish faith. And these are the leaders of the Jewish faith. And they're seeing this Jesus preach things that are unfamiliar to them. These are men who knew the Old Testament front and back, knew all of it, and were living their lives as if they were the strongest believers. These were the religious elite. These are the people in churches. These aren't unbelievers. These are the believers of their day. And they're being confronted by Jesus time and time again. That's what modern-day Acts was like. That's what the days of Jesus were like. And you can understand where the religious leaders would be upset about this Jesus and about his disciples. They had reason to be upset. They saw themselves as the protectors of Israel. Their job was to, to be in this balance. Rome has ultimate authority, according to them. They also believe in this God of the Bible. And they want to live somewhere in the middle because they want the freedom to worship their God. But they also need to abide by the rules and laws placed over them by Rome. And Jesus is making a mess of things because it's making their faith look like a joke. It's causing an uproar. Every time they go to a synagogue, every time they go to a town, there's an uproar. There are riots. There's crazy stuff happening because of Jesus and his disciples. And then Jesus and his disciples, they're not kind to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Remember, the religious elite, John the Baptist, if you want to read along, turn to Matthew 3, verses 7 through 10. John the Baptist starts things. Before Jesus is even on the scene, John the Baptist is doing his baptism out in the wilderness, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, try to put the mind of them, try to have that mind about you. You're protecting the Jewish faith. Honestly, that's what they believed. And there's this little thing happening out in the wilderness that's really causing trouble, grabbing the attention of Rome, grabbing the attention of the Jewish faith. So the Pharisees and Sadducees go out to check out what's going on, and when they show up, this crazy man with camel hair, whatever, just a nutcase to them. He looks up at them, and in Matthew 3, 7 through 10, says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, 
God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the start. This is John the Baptist attacking them. They're the religious elite. There's no one more holy in all the land. There's no one more righteous. Even if it's by their own definition, these are the leaders. They live pure lives, and everyone can see the lives that they live. The public has some idea of their hypocrisy. That's evidence as well. But they're going after the religious elite of the faith that Jesus came as the Savior of. That's crazy. Jesus has a parable for them in Matthew 21. It's Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46. Hear how Jesus treats them. Is Jesus kind to the Pharisees and Sadducees? He says, hear another parable. He's already been teaching. Pharisees and Sadducees are there. He says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. So again, he sent servants, more than the first. They did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Then listen to Jesus' reply. Jesus said to them, Remember, these are religious elite. He says to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Remember that. We already read through Acts 4 and we see what Peter preaches to them. Remember what Jesus said to them. Face to face, Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He goes on in 43 and says, Therefore I will tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. These are the very men that we're talking about in Acts 4. Having a confrontation with Jesus, Jesus calling them out, and the Pharisees and Sadducees afraid to act because of syncretism. Because they need the approval of the men because that's what holds them up in power over the Jews. They need the approval of Rome because that's what keeps them in their position of power over the Jews. All of their life depends on this syncretism. They've adapted it. It's part of their lives. It's who they are. And Jesus is hitting them right between the eyes. And there's nothing they can say. It's the spirit moving. So here are the Sadducees in Acts 4. If you don't know, the Sanhedrin is like the Supreme Court. 70 members plus the high priest. So an odd number of total of 71. All those chairs in that, in that uh, Supreme Court are filled by different members. Most of them are Sadducees. Sadducees, remember, are the ones that are, they're for Rome. They're for mixing the culture. They're for that syncretism with Rome. The Pharisees make up a smaller number. 
And the high priest is a Sadducee, so they have majority. The Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. They believe that you just go through this life, you be pious, you abide by God's law, and when you die, you're dead. You have a job when you're in this life, but there's no benefit, there's no reward, and there's also no punishment. They believe things are very contrary to what Jesus teaches, and they are the religious leaders of the day. They saw Jesus as a threat to their syncretized world, and what did they do? They killed him. Huge threat to everything about their life, and they killed him with no purpose, except that he claimed authority and they weren't willing to give authority because syncretism is about authority. Long background, but I think it's important. Does it sound familiar? Are we syncretizing a bit? Are we okay to worship God so long as what? So now we're here, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. This is the ruling class, temple guard. All of the Sadducees, aristocrats, rich people. They've done excavations there and found that the most elaborate homes were the Sadducees. They had so much money, so much wealth, so much to lose. Here Peter and John teaching in the temple, causing an uproar, and so they come upon them, those religious leaders. In verse 2, they were greatly annoyed because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus resurrection from the dead. They don't believe in resurrection from the dead. There are throngs of people coming out to check out what happened. Why is the lame man walking? How does this happen? This is a work of God. What's going on? And they want to know, and Peter and John are proclaiming the gospel. Sadducees weren't getting crowds when they were teaching. The role of the priest was to teach, and they didn't have a response like this. There's jealousy, there's anger, there's frustration, there's danger. Remember the, these religious elite, they're trying to protect the church. In their mind, we're protecting the church, and we're having an uproar in the temple again. It's only been 60, 70 days, maybe it's been two months since Christ was crucified. It's not long. There was an uproar. Pilate would ultimately lose his job over those things. Rome is threatening to come in and demolish the Jewish faith because of these uproars. The Jewish people seem out of control. And now these religious leaders trying to protect their faith and protect their way of life have to come in and intervene. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the works of Jesus Christ, they are politically, they are socially, they are religiously destabilizing. These Christians are undermining all of their culture all at once. So they're greatly annoyed. We go on in verses 3 and 4, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. They don't know what to do. Late in the day, remember we went for prayers, they said the ninth hour of the day, which is 3 p.m., so they, the man is healed at 3 p.m. Then they go in and they're teaching for who knows how long and the crowds are gathering. The sun is setting. There's no time. So they just say, let's just arrest these guys, put them in jail, and we'll come deal with them tomorrow because we don't even know what to do right now. And the great thing about it is that these men aren't anything. Peter and John, they're vessels of the Holy Spirit. So what's great to me 
because the gospel is way bigger than these two men. They can throw the men in jail. But guess what? The gospel, you can't throw the gospel in jail. It almost has more power because those men are in jail. The gospel is is growing and it's going out in more effective ways when there is suffering associated with it. When we're prosperous and when everything's going well, the gospel can get just crushed. It becomes quiet. It's through suffering that the gospel comes to life. That's where people need Jesus. Suffering is the way that God determined to spread his good news. And it's politically, socially, and religiously destabilizing. 3,000 people at Pentecost. So just a few pages in your Bible before, not very long ago, there were 3,000 that came at Pentecost. Now it says there's 5,000 men. I'm not sure. Maybe it's 5,000 in total. But maybe it's 5,000 men, which means if you include women and children, there are a lot of people coming to Christ in a very short amount of time, and the gospel cannot be put in chains. And even so, just like at Pentecost, many people come to Christ, but then these few at that time say, the men are drunk. The men are drunk. Can't believe it. They reject the message. We go on to verse 5. So on the next day, there the Jewish rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, and there with them is Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and the high priestly family. These are all the very top-end religious elite. They consist of Sadducees, the guys who are friendly to Rome. They consist of the Pharisees, the traditionalists, the legalists, the self-righteous ones. They consist of lay elders, like people at the top of each of the clans of Israel that are there as elders to represent their own families, their own towns. You've got all these authorities there, and guess what? Two months ago, this same group convened. Two months ago. They convened on a matter of urgent importance because their way of life was threatened. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the center of it all. So they held a mock trial, and they killed him. And now these same men, can you imagine how annoyed they are, are coming together to hear a case. Is the case about Peter and John? It has nothing to do with those men. Nothing to do with them. This is a reopening of the case against Jesus Christ. Imagine the grace. Imagine the mercy. Do you remember what happened when Christ was crucified? I don't have enough time in the sermon this morning. The amazing miracles that happened at the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Christ. And these men, they were witnesses of it. They watched that thick curtain get torn in two. They watched all these things. They saw this all. They did it. These high priests in the crucifixion of Jesus, they were the ones that went out into the crowd and stirred up the crowd. Crucify him. Crucify him. These are the people. And now here they are a couple of months later hearing a case about Jesus Christ who is dead. And there is no resurrection. Why are we sitting here again having this kind of disruption over Jesus of Nazareth who we killed? Peter, last week, in the sermon that Josh did, Peter said that you, speaking to all the people that were in attendance of the temple that day, and he included their elders, you and your leaders, that was all done in ignorance. 
And so now is time. This is grace and this is mercy. Wouldn't God have had every right to just wipe them out? But he's coming again to preach the gospel again. He's putting Peter and John in front of them again because the the case is still open and there's still a chance. There's one more opportunity. Verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? This is syncretism again. It's all a matter of power and authority. Nothing else. These religious leaders didn't come to them and, and ask what the trick was. Who was the imposter? Like who, who was the body double? Peter and John, who did you bring out here to pretend to be the lame man so that he could walk? Yeah, funny. We get it. There is no accusation about the miracle of God being fake. No one can deny it. If anyone wanted to deny it, don't you think these men would have said it right here? Their first accusation would have been, you lied. You made it up. You didn't heal any. The guy is still back in his house. We know. The gig is up. That's not what they say because they know that the miracle of God is true. The works of God cannot be denied. They can try to be syncretized, but they can't be denied. You can, in your mind, accept that, yeah, okay, there's a God. I can look out at the sunrise. I can look at the mountains. I can see. I believe that there's a God. And I'm okay with believing there's a God as long as his works and all those things can be syncretized into this world that I need to be a part of. And everything in my life depends on this world, the syncretized world, the cultural world that I live in. And if it doesn't fit, then it can't work. This isn't the first time, of course, that authority is on trial. I'm going to read a small section here in John chapter 10. If you want to turn there, this is verses 22 to 23. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. This is Hanukkah, Feast of Dedication. They're celebrating their victory when they pushed out those Greeks and they won a war. This is Hanukkah, and they're celebrating Hanukkah on the 25th of Kislev. They're more or less December. It's winter. Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. They're in the temple. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. After everything they went through, they're looking for a Savior. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works, these works that I do in my Father's name, bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's the works. It's the miraculous works of God. They are evident. Look around. Look at the lives of some of your brothers and sisters in the chairs next to you and hear their stories. Hear stories about prison. Hear stories about lives that were in ruin. And see the miraculous works of God that are in this room. They are undeniable. If not, look. Look around you. Look at the science that just can't come up with explanations. God is the explanation. God is the one. His works are undeniable. But what it comes down to is, are you one of his sheep? 
because he is the shepherd, which means he has authority. It's not enough that he is just a God among many. It's not enough that he is a God who created things. Is he your shepherd? Does he have authority? And if he doesn't have authority, then you aren't really believing in God. You're believing in something. I don't know what. You cannot syncretize. The Jews, in response to him, picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown many works from the Father. For which one of those works are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. It's for blasphemy. Because you're making yourself out to be God. It's authority. We reject God's authority. Not them. We. I reject God's authority. I know him to be God. I know that's true. But come and watch me in my work someday. Come and watch me in my interactions with my children someday. Come and watch me. And you'll find out that not in all areas of my life do I really admit that he is God and give him all the authority. Instead, I keep authority for myself. Or I keep the things that I like about my culture and I don't want to confront those things. It's authority. The works and the authority are one. If you believe his works, then you have to believe that he has authority to do the works. It means that he's God. No one else does those works. You can't separate them. In verses 8 through 10, back in Acts, Peter's going to respond to them. Listen to the words. Is this Peter speaking? Or based on what we've already read today, is this God speaking? Filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Same spirit. Same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave. Same spirit that spoke when Jesus was speaking to them. This is the same spirit. Same response to good works, too. Here's the works of God on display. And Peter says who it was. It was Jesus Christ. The guy you killed, still alive. Still performing the works that prove that he's God even after he's dead. Tell me there's no resurrection. Tell me, religious leaders, how this is possible. Think of the time of Pharaoh. Which one of you, Sadducees, do you want to come and heal the lame man? Which one of you can? None of them can. It's the works of God. It means that he is God. This isn't Peter speaking. It's the Holy Spirit in him and through him. And if you're a believer today, the Holy Spirit in you can work through you if you'll make room and set aside your syncretism and listen and pursue him, this same spirit is alive in you. Or is it? The truth confronts our social, political, religious activities. Confronts all of them. Not one sphere. It's not about coming here and being fed on a Sunday and then going out and your religious life is over here and your cultural life is over here. It wasn't true for these guys. It's certainly not true for you. This is the world that we live in right now, and the truth is going to confront all of it. The good works of Christ are manifest. We've talked about that. They're manifest in all of you. If you've come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if he really is God, there are stories in this room that would bring us all to tears. 
The works of God are manifest today. This dead Christ, the one who was killed some 2,000 years ago, the man's not dead. He is God, and he's alive. The works prove it. Proves his resurrection because these works are taking place after he was dead. He's not a good story. He's not a good man. He's not a good teacher that's now dead. He is God. Peter goes on, and this one, after what we read, don't you think this just strikes to their hearts? Don't you think this gives them goosebumps when Peter, an uneducated man, says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the Sadducees, the chief priests, religious elite, the most holy of holy. He was rejected by you, and he's become the cornerstone. You think that confronted them a little bit? I get goosebumps thinking about that, being in their position. Jesus speaking these exact same words to them, and we know they perceived that Jesus was talking about them, and now this Peter comes, hits him right between the eyes again. Amazing. They fear people. They fear Rome. They fear losing their power and authority. And now what are they going to do? What can they do? Peter says, it wasn't me. <laughs> they, they crucified Jesus because Jesus says, yeah, it's me. But now Peter's standing there and they say, who did this? And he says, well, it wasn't me. It was Jesus. You already killed him. You want to kill him again? What are you going to do? At some point, you can't continue living in syncretism. You have got to give yourself over at some point. We all do. In this great final verse, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Not Peter, not John. It's the name of Jesus. All of us, wretched, all of us in this room, Sadducees, all of us living syncretized lives, refusing to stand up, all of us, me maybe more than you, living lives that are wretched, all of us before Christ, not able to even seek him, not able to say one good thing about him, but Jesus saves us. Jesus gives us faith. Through the faith, we believe in him. And by that faith, like Josh says, the faith, <laughs> believing is in faith alone. Just that faith alone. But faith doesn't come alone. Josh said that a few weeks back, and that's perfect. It's faith alone, but faith doesn't come alone. Your life should look like you have faith. If your life doesn't look like you have faith, are you syncretized? And if you're syncretized and you're unwilling to give up all that this marvelous culture is offering you right now, why? Why are you still living as if there is no God? Why are you living like he is not the authority? And yet your culture barks out at you every day, syncretize now or it's going to be over. The threat of being able to worship God in freedom like we're doing this morning in a public school, it's there. It's real because at some point you can't syncretize anymore. It's not a matter of if, it's when. At some point, something's got to give. Either Jesus is authority or he's not. So now, what's the test? If you don't believe in this room, if you're not a believer, you need the gospel. You need to know that Jesus lived this life of perfection in order to die for you so that you could have this everlasting life, so that you could be secure in him and in your belief. You need the gospel. If you have the gospel, then let's use scripture and ask some questions. 
2 Timothy, this letter written by Paul, he's writing to believers. He's writing about believers. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, is about believers. And listen to what he says about believers. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. This is the Sadducees and Pharisees. Having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. Guilty of all these things. This is inside the church. I should correct myself, maybe not believers, but these were churchgoers. These were people that were showing up on Sunday. I'm going to recant that for sure. Maybe not believers, but maybe in our midst this morning. We can look around and see the believers that we know and hear their stories and they're the very testimony of God. And we can also look around and we can kind of go, huh, not sure. Not sure. Appearances of godliness, attending church and doing the things that make it look like, yeah, sure, they're believers, maybe. But syncretized with the world. We read in Jude, verses 3 through 5, Jude is writing this letter. Who's he writing it to? He's writing it to believers. And he says, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, Jude was eager to write about the gospel, this gospel that we believe in. So Jude is eager to write about that, but he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus saved people from Egypt, put his chosen people into the desert, and as they were out there, do you know what was proven? They weren't all his. In this church today, you've all come in and you want to hear the gospel and you want to abide by faith, except that do you know what is true? It says very likely that you're not all of him. Some of us may not be. Shouldn't be an easy thing to swallow. It's the gospel. You need the gospel. If you think you believe, then you need the gospel again. You need to know that Jesus is still saving, still redeeming. John is one of the people in here. Peter and John are preaching. Peter and John have healed this man. And they just preach the simple gospel. But later in their epistles, when they write to their believers, when they write to their churches, it's not just the simple gospel. Of course, the gospel is the foundation, but on the foundation, they lay works because faith comes with so much more. John says in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world, speaking to his church, to the people that he loves, to the body. He says, don't love the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Yes, the gospel, but now what? Peter presents the simple gospel in Acts to a new church, to new believers. 
But now, to his believers, when he writes an epistle to them, he says in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I don't have to preach the gospel again. We know the gospel. I'm not going to preach that, Peter says, but I am going to remind you that now that you have the gospel, live like it. Don't be syncretized. Give up these things. Give up the world and now live like Jesus actually is Lord. Or is he? Is he? Philippians 2, Paul says that we should work out our salvation, fear and trembling. If this is a challenge to you, good. Is this a challenge to me? Fear and trembling is how we work out our salvation, not with overconfidence that I had an experience one time. I heard a message and raised my hand. Maybe I even got baptized. I had an experience and so now I'm good. I checked the box. Hell insurance is paid for and I go back to living my life. That is not the way. Faith comes with so much more. Questions for you as we leave. And I'll try to wrap up. I have no, long, no idea how long this has been going on. <laughs> but I could go a lot longer. Questions as you go. Remember what, uh, what was said about the Bereans? They would, a pastor, some, some guy would come. Could be a guy like me. Preaches. And then the Bereans would go home and they would open their scriptures and they would examine the scriptures to decide, is this man telling the truth or not? We should all be Bereans, yeah? Harder challenge for you. Try being Bereans of your culture. Go home, yes, absolutely. Go home and read these things. Read what I've said and make sure that what I'm saying is true. But an additional challenge, the things that you're living for, your goals, how you raise your kids, how you go about your business, what you do for work, all of your life, lived in accordance with a worldview that's been taught to you since you were a child. Why don't you go home this week and be a Berean of your culture? This is my plug for life groups. I should have said at the beginning, but my plug is now. In your life group, if you're not talking about this, what are you talking about? Talk about this. Be a Berean of your culture. How are you going to live your life? What now? So the first question, are we Bereans of our culture? Second question, has all authority been given to Jesus Christ? Has all authority on heaven and earth been given to Jesus Christ? We see his works. We might say that he's God, but is all authority given to him? Do our lives reflect that? Just think on that this week as you go about your work. Maybe you have your quiet time in the morning. If, if it's like me, then by about 10 o'clock, I've long forgotten my quiet time. I'm in the middle of my day, and it has nothing to do with Jesus, honestly. But does he have all authority over all aspects, political, social, religious? And last question, because I think we're all in it together. So the question is, and it's for me, how long will we reject his authority in all spheres of life? How long? Go out this week. Think about these questions. 
Consider your life, and I guarantee you're guilty of syncretism. And make a choice this week and talk with other people, other believers who can hold you accountable. Set aside the syncretism and figure out what it means to live for Christ in a sinful and wretched generation. How are we going to be a light? What now?